Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to a most intelligent and thoughtful audience, and that includes those of you listening on WROL in Boston, Massachusetts area, as well as those who listen to this as a podcast over the internet. This show is sort of a classic Christian apologetics show in that the purpose is to provide you evidence, reasons that people have for believing that the Bible is really true, Christians who have faith but have reasons for that faith as well. And I've mentioned on previous episodes my personal journey that resulted in me becoming a Christian and ultimately a creationist who accepts the biblical account of history at face value from having been an evolutionary atheist. My journey began by a hole being knocked in my foundation of atheism. And it was really more naturalism, but if you're an atheist, by definition you must be a naturalist. I don't understand how you could claim to be an atheist and not be a naturalist. That is, believing that all there is is the physical world, matter and energy, nothing else. And I've talked about how that particular belief became untenable when I confronted the death of my best friend and literally looked at his dead body and realized I no longer believe that all there was to my friend Stephen was chemistry. And I recently talked about holding our first grandson, who at four months is about 15 pounds and something. He's a good-sized lad, even though he was born six weeks early. Looks like he's going to be a big man when he's finished growing, like his dad. And I talked about the notion of holding him and contemplating this question. Is this little boy just a 15-pound bag of chemistry? Is there nothing more than animated molecules here? Or is there something that transcends the natural world? Is he really a living being that has a soul which is more than just this body? That's a very important question for any naturalist to consider, because to hang on to naturalism, you must believe my grandson is nothing but 15 pounds of chemistry. And I don't believe anyone can truly assess the viability of a biblical worldview can actually entertain the notion that it might possibly be true if their worldview is solidly one of naturalism. If they really believe naturalism's got all the answers and all the observations are consistent with a naturalistic worldview. I had the great opportunity to study a bit with a Chinese professor who was questioning whether it were even possible that the Bible might be true. He was open to the possibility, but he's an educated man with a Ph.D. He teaches in China, and he had some very real questions about this. And so we examined some of the levels of evidence that point toward the necessity for a designer, the intelligent design evidence, so to speak. And this professor said something to me that I'll never forget. Even though he was limited in his English-speaking capability, he phrased it this way, and I think it is highly useful and highly appropriate. What he said was, learning the weaknesses of naturalism opened my mind to the truth. That's really a rather profound statement, if you think about it. When I was an atheist, 
I would not have wanted to think about that very much. Well, I'm certainly not the only one that had my worldview rocked a bit that ultimately resulted in me accepting a biblical worldview, coming to believe the Bible was true, that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, and accepting him as my personal Savior. That sequence of events or that pathway has been followed many, many times. Also, the pathway from being an evolutionist to being a creationist has been followed many, many times, and it's not just by scientifically illiterate, babbling fools like you'd be led to believe by the adamant atheist community out there. Now, there are atheists who are very thoughtful and very nice about things, very polite. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ones that inhabit way too many blogs out there in internet land and just revile anyone who would dare to challenge a naturalistic position as being an ultimate fool and someone who totally ignores all the scientific evidence and proof. They're complete bozos, you know, that type of attitude. Easy to find if you look for it. Almost impossible to miss if you read atheist blogs, unfortunately. When we come back in just a moment, I'm going to share part of another chapter in the book Transformed by the Evidence, Testimonies of Leading Creationists as they describe their pathway toward a creationist worldview. Very excellent book edited by Doug Sharp and Jerry Bergman, and I recommend you get it if you have any interest at all in why would anyone believe a biblical worldview is true. Back in just one moment. We're going to listen to part of the chapter about and by Tom Hannigan in the book Transformed by the Evidence, Testimonies of Leading Creationists. The summary for his chapter says the following. The title is A Forester Finds Faith. Growing up in the public school system, Tom was inundated with the evolutionary belief that we could explain all of life without God. He despised religion and the hypocrisy in his religious and dysfunctional family was palpable. Through high school and into his early years of college, he was satisfied, at least on the outside, that no creator was needed to explain life. However, after a series of amazing circumstances that included sleepless nights, answered prayer, miraculous intervention, and deep soul-searching, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. The transformation brought him peace of mind and a purpose to a lost soul. Tom is now an associate professor of biology at Truett McConnell College. So here now is Tom Hennigan's transformation. For 15 years, my public school teachers taught me that macroevolution was a scientific fact. This indoctrination began in the primary grades when I was introduced to dinosaurs, and it was presented as fact throughout the rest of my high school and college years. No one questioned it neither students nor teachers. In college, I felt comfortable with what I thought was the fact of molecules to man evolution and believed that I was really grasping the true history of life. All of my favorite television science programs only reinforced what I was learning in my classes, thus helping to solidify my views. As I reflect on my life at this time, the naturalistic worldview into which I was indoctrinated in school affected me in many ways. I was often angry, rebellious, and miserable. 
My relations with my immediate family were strained. My anger could have metamorphosed into pure rage, and my potential for violence sometimes scared me. I spent a lot of time alone in the woods, learning about the wilderness with the goal of moving as far away from the human race as I could. I was free, the master of my destiny. I loved animals, and absolutely hated those who would wantonly kill animals, and swore that if I ever observed such behavior, I would take the human beast out myself. My spiritual life was arid and desolate. I thirsted for meaning, but my hunger was never quenched. My time in the woods was lonely and unfulfilled, though at the time I didn't recognize its desolation. I considered religious people, especially Christians, ignorant lunatics. They occasionally approached me with the good news of Jesus Christ or invited me to church, but I blew them off as fanatics. Why would anyone bother going to church or believe the Bible when the evolution proved that we could explain life and the universe without a God? Little did I realize that my life and worldview were about to drastically change. The year was 1980 when I was attending a forestry college in northern New York. We had the unique opportunity to travel to North Carolina for observing southern forestry practices. When that week was finished, all of us looked forward to our spring break. At the end of the week, one night, several students got into a discussion about origins. Two Christians in our group then shared the scientific case that a creator was behind life and the universe and not natural trance process that occurred over millions of years. These two had invited me to Bible studies before, and I had politely told them to take a hike. That night was different, though, because they presented the case for Christianity by starting with evidence for a creator, a perspective I had never heard before. They stressed that scientists were not present at the beginning, and so do not know for certain the initial conditions. They therefore must come up with conjectures based on preconceived philosophical assumptions. I had never considered this fact before. I hadn't realized that the presuppositions with which I had been brainwashed were actually based on the atheistic philosophy of naturalistic materialism. I don't recall anything discussed that night, but I do remember that I could not sleep because my worldview had been shaken, thus unsettling my mind, and I soon would be transformed. The next morning, the two Christians, Larry and Dave, wanted to go to the airport early so they could get home to enjoy a longer spring break with their families. They wanted to know if any of us wanted to go with them. We bought Super Saver tickets and had to stay an extra day for our confirmed flight, but they wanted to get home early by flying on standby. Against the advice of our professor, two of us decided to join them. When we arrived at the airport, our professor asked us if we wanted him to wait in case we couldn't get a flight. Both Larry and Dave said that they felt the Lord would be with us. Meanwhile, I was fretting, thinking, do I really want to travel with these fanatics? I was still in great turmoil from the previous night because I was beginning to question all that I had believed, and now even getting home was questionable. The standby flight from Charlotte to Atlanta was uneventful. However, when we approached the departure gate for our destination, it was packed. Open seats for the four of us did not look promising. Larry and Dave prayed, and I was stressed. The two felt at ease and peaceful as they were confident this flight would take all of us back home. In fear, I blurted out, if we all get back on this flight, I'll go to church with you on Sunday. 
to which they replied, Fine, and we'll pick you up. Fifteen minutes before the flight departed, the person in charge told us that they had three seats left, but because there were four of us, we'd have to draw straws and the loser would need to take the next available flight. As we drew straws, I watched Dave go off by himself, pray, and return with great joy on his face. He proceeded to tell the loser not to worry about having to take the next flight because he was going to be with us. I said, Are you off your rocker? The lady just told us there were only three seats available. Five minutes before departure, the lady huddled us again and whispered, Guys, I feel real sorry about your situation, so I've put your losing buddy in the first class section so that all of you can stay together at no extra charge. Please don't tell anyone. The rest of our class ended up with a shortened spring break due to a snowstorm that kept them in North Carolina for an extra three days. Needless to say, I found myself in church on Sunday. As the pastor approached the pulpit to give the sermon he had spent all week preparing, he shared with the congregation that he was going to preach a different sermon, since he felt that someone in church that day really needed to know Jesus as his Lord, Savior, and Creator. As he spoke, I thought to myself, how does he know so much about me? I was finding it difficult to breathe. Some would argue that these events were purely coincidental. That would be a logical interpretation, but the fact is, the incidents that occurred in those few days brought me to a church where I heard a sermon that forever transformed my life. In my view, the evidence suggests that the God of the universe permanently shook my world. One defining moment was when I realized that the pastor really didn't know anything about me, but my Creator and Savior knew me intimately. As I look back, I would normally have had nothing to do with Christ because of my philosophical beliefs in evolution. The stumbling block of my atheistic evolutionary worldview had to be removed before God could open my eyes to His Word and my need for a Savior. Through Larry, Dave, the pastor, and my own study, I learned that His Word was true and reliable. The Bible states that Jesus is alive and shepherding his flocks, and those who know the shepherd will hear his voice. The great shepherd was leading those men because they followed and believed his word, and I watched God answer their prayers. The life I thought I understood faded as I realized that it was empty when compared to the light of knowing Christ. That night I began my walk with Jesus in my favorite place, the forest. It has been 33 years since I first heard his call, and when I responded, my life was transformed. My study of the scientific evidence proved to me that an intelligent creator, not evolution, was responsible for the creation. My biological research continues to be consistent with the idea that the Bible is God's word and Jesus is who he says he is. For example, Darwinists believe that random beneficial genetic changes combined with natural selection, provided the means that produced all of life's diversity. Claimed examples of these types of genetic changes include bacteria, their resistance to antibiotics, their ability to genetically adapt to environmental stresses, and their abilities to obtain information from materials like nylon. However, when you study these bacteria closely, new insight has shown that when the beneficial changes occur, there is a loss of pre-existing functions in the wild original bacteria. This elimination of existing machinery may provide a temporary survival value to the bacterium in a new environment, but does not explain how the machinery was built in the first place.
Let me interject, as you've often heard me say if you listen to this show, the devil's in the details. Many evolutionary stories sound plausible until you dig in and look for detailed evidence for the mechanisms that they either claim or assume must be there. Remember that staunch evolutionist Lynn Margulis said, I was taught and believed Darwinian evolution until I looked for evidence of it. Now, in her case, she continued to believe evolution and came up with her own theory as to how it might have occurred, and did not believe in Darwinian evolution, which is taught to the public everywhere. She knew too much to believe it. So don't forget the devil's in the details. And there are many creationist scientists who examine closely the details, but aren't hampered in their interpretation by a materialistic naturalism worldview. When we return, we'll hear more of Tom Hennigan's testimony about his transformation by the evidence. Tom Hennigan's chapter, A Forester Finds Faith, continues. The other fascinating discoveries of these and other mutations, such as the genes involved with differences in mammal coat color, suggest that many mutations are not random, but directed a prediction that is consistent with a biblical worldview. For me, this is major evidence that many of these observed genetic changes give every indication of a designed system. This adaptive process does not add any complexity to the already existing system, but subtracts from its total genetic fitness. Evolution is going in the wrong direction and therefore cannot explain how life began. To make matters more complex... Neo-Darwinists trumpet junk DNA as useless chemistry left over after millions of years of random mutations, and I believed claims like these for years. Today, we are finding that the DNA-RNA connections, in the words of Microsoft founder Bill Gates, are like that of a computer program, but far more advanced than any software ever created. Genetic research is continually shedding light on the complexity of organisms. For example, in order for living things to continue living, they need programmed information that continually reads, proofreads, corrects mistakes, updates, modifies, and builds structures according to the genetic instructions. What is becoming apparent through genetic research is that genes and proteins are specified just like meaningful sentences or lines of computer code. Not only so, but genes have multiple codes like two or more written messages embedded into one another. However, these codes are not written, but are a chemical format that is so complex that different messages are produced in multiple layers, and different programming instructions are written in multiple directions. To put this in perspective, some have used the analogy of comparing the embedded information found on both coding and non-coding, once called junk, DNA, with reading a self-help book about a variety of skills you can learn, depending on where you begin reading. There are multiple instructions embedded within multiple instructions in multiple directions. For example, if you read the book from front to back, you learn all about building a car. If you read it from back to front, you would learn how to design the electrical circuitry of a house. If you began reading in the middle, reading backward, and then forward, you would learn calculus. The complexity is mind-boggling and inconsistent with random natural process. In 1994, evolutionist Kenneth Miller wrote, 
If the DNA of a human being or any other organism resembled a carefully constructed computer program with neatly arranged and logically structured modules, each written to fulfill a specific function, the evidence of intelligent design would be overwhelming. Though Miller still does not acknowledge the intelligent design of the biological language programmed into all organisms, the research is quite clear that it is a staggeringly complicated chemical language that our best minds in genetics are attempting to decode. This code, more sophisticated than any produced by our best computer minds, is consistent with our common life experiences that enable us to distinguish design from random accidental processes and convinces me that it took a very intelligent creator to produce it. Let me interject a little bit here. The ongoing discoveries in the world of genetics and epigenetics, really cellular biology and microbiology, continue to solidify the case that life is the result of intelligent design and could not possibly have become what it is by any kind of random naturalistic processes. That is essentially the message of the intelligent design movement as it relates to biology. And that message is very convincing if one pays any attention to the details that they comment on. And it is precisely the fact that these details and evidences are convincing that causes evolutionists and atheists to do so much in the way of trying to keep it away from the public. By all means, don't let students in school be aware of this evidence. And in the public sphere, don't debate intelligent design theorists. By all means, don't debate creationists. And on the blogospheres, shout them down as idiotic morons. Use intimidation and ridicule to keep anyone with a questioning mind from seeing this evidence. I personally think you and other students of the world are smart enough to make up their own minds, and you should have access to all of the evidence so that you can decide what you believe. You can see what best matches the reality around us. As a former evolutionist and now a creationist, I have absolutely no fear of reading or having other people read the evolutionist literature. In fact, the more you know about the details of evolution, the less likely it becomes. Continued belief ultimately results in nothing more than a faith-based belief where the faith is in naturalism. And in fact, some evolutionists have stated it in almost precisely that way. Earlier in his chapter, Tom Hennigan mentioned becoming aware of the fact that evolutionary beliefs were built on top of ideological, philosophical beliefs. And that realization was an important part of him opening his mind. I believe that awareness is very important. And a really good example of a completely honest statement from cosmologist George Ellis in Scientific American a few years ago about this is the following. People need to be aware that there is a range of models that could explain the observations. He's talking about cosmology, the universe. For instance, I can construct you a spherically symmetrical universe with Earth at its center, and you cannot disprove it based on observations. You can only exclude it on philosophical grounds. What I want to bring into the open is the fact that we are using philosophical criteria in choosing our models. A lot of cosmology tries to hide that. So now you've heard it, and you should be aware, and you should open your eyes and look for the ideology underneath the claims. 
Tom Hennigan finishes his chapter, My passion is to teach students how to think about origins rather than what to think. My prayer is that they will understand the issues, and when the Lord is ready to burst in on their world, evolution won't be a stumbling block. May they avoid the weary, dead-end road of evolutionary humanism, and may they be overwhelmed by the love of their Heavenly Father as they travel His road to everlasting life and peace. Very well said, Tom. And let me say that I completely agree with that sentiment. I do not teach in a college, but I am an apologist here on the radio, and I have the same goals for everyone who has an open mind and is questioning what is real. The evidence for the Creator is really around us, and He deserves to be acknowledged, worshipped, and loved. SeaCreationMythOrMiracle.com